I want to take you back into the passage we were looking at last week. Don't worry if you were not here um, for that message. I'm going to give you a two-minute recap on the things that we we're saying, because we're looking at something a little different today. Um, so if you have a Bible, please open up Mark chapter 3. It's, uh, if you need a church Bible, there's a bunch of them on the table at the back, and we're opening up to page 1476. It's page 1476. It's Mark chapter 3. Mark is one of the books, perhaps the first book that was written about Jesus, um, and it, it records the eyewitness account of his life and ministry, particularly the three years running up to his crucifixion when he was, he was put to death by the Romans and uh, the resurrection that happened a few days later. And so it, it's an incredible document, really, because it gives you first-hand testimony into the ways that he thought and spoke, the things he did, and it's been a foundation, the cornerstone of Christian faith over the millennia. I want to read to you a passage, a story of a particular day in the life of Jesus when there are a number of different groups that he's interacting with throughout the course of these, these moments. And you'll see four groups. There's um, just a large crowd, a very large crowd that's gathered and, and assembled by foot um, through excitement to come and, and, and find out what this man is about. Then there are people who are gripped with evil powers, which the Bible describes as demons, so um, kind of dark forces, and the way the demons interact with Jesus. There's his disciples, who are the followers, and we're going to think about them today. And then there are these, his own family, his kin, um, and his closest friends who he would have grown up with, who, you know, weirdly didn't believe in Jesus at this stage. And uh, we were talking about that last week. So let me read to you from verse 7 of chapter 3. It says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. What I wanted to show you... Um, over the course of this couple of weeks, is this reality that in the time of Jesus, as well as today, there are a lot of people who come into contact with Jesus or his teachings, and we respond in different ways. And uh, I was looking at a number of the examples of people who were in the kind of vicinity of Jesus himself, but who never, who did not seem to believe in him. They, 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 they didn't make the right kind of response to him. And I was looking at some of these neg negative examples last week. We considered, um, we considered those who 
I described it this way, is having a response of emotion without conviction. Particularly the crowd I'm thinking of there. How there's a kind of hysterical passion which draws them to him because they're going to get their healings. But there's no real belief in him because it, it just as quickly disappears. And I think a lot of folk in my own experience, and it may be true of you as well, that there may have been an emotional draw towards Jesus and towards Christianity. But just as quickly, the interest can dissipate if it isn't, if it's not built upon a kind of a foundation of belief and, and solid conviction and faith in him. And I don't know if that describes any of you, but we talked about those with emotion without conviction. Then there were those who are described as having knowledge without repentance. And I particularly was looking at the way the demons responded to Jesus and how it says that they know he's the son of God. It's the weird thing in the Gospels that, of course, they're spiritual beings. So they always seem to know who Jesus is um, when no one else around him necessarily can see. But they perceive him in a spiritual way. They know who he is, but what they don't want to do is sort of change sides. They don't want to, you know, I'm not saying that they could, but in a way, it's a picture of a lot of how, how... how people react to Jesus. You can know everything about him. You may even have an element of conviction in your heart. Well, I know who he is. He's the son of God. But it doesn't necessarily result in, in the giving over of your life to him. That What's missing is a, the ability to call him the Lord of your life, which is to say that you're willing to surrender every aspect of your, of your, your life to him without reservation. That's always a battle that takes place in, in people's hearts, but without it, there's no real faith. There's no, you're not really a Christian. So there were those with emotion, there were those with knowledge, but no repentance, no willingness to turn around to him. And then there were this, this third group we talked about, which is his own family and, and close friends, who are described as familiarity without worship. That it's possible, and I think this is particularly true, for many who've grown up within Christianity of some kind, those who've grown up in a Christian home, those who were brought to church from a young age, that you can have a complete familiarity with the things of Jesus. You could, you could describe his life and the, the teachings about Jesus. You, you know, there's, there's nothing that's particularly new or mysterious to you. But what can be missing is awe, is worship is that conviction of heart where Christ has gotten a hold of you in such a way that you don't just know about him, but you know him. And you can say of your life that I'm his, and he can say of you that you are mine. And we were looking at this from a particularly negative perspective, I suppose, just trying to look at our own hearts and think, well, is any of this true of us? But if you ask the question, what is it that these three groups have in common? What what is it that that joins them, I suppose. And the answer is this, that in all of them, there's a part of their being which they are withholding from Jesus. If you think of yourself as, in your humanity, you have different faculties. And I was talking about the mind, the heart, and the will. And it seems to me that there are those here who, whose, whose minds are not given to Jesus. They're all passion and emotion, but it just as quickly dissipates, and the mind is not given to Christ. Then there are those who are all... Um, who do not give the heart to him. You might know everything about him, but there's no love for him. And then there are those who who don't choose. You do not exercise a will, a choice, a decision, a sacrifice to follow him. So we're looking at these, these examples. But right there in the middle of the story, you also have the disciples, the 12 apostles. 
And uh, this is the paradigm of the Christian life. To be a Christian is to become and to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And you ask, well, what's a disciple? It's not the kind of word we use in everyday life, is it? A disciple simply means a learner. But it's not so much the idea of somebody who's learning in a classroom, um, someone who's kind of learning rote facts and those kinds of things. There is a, an amount of learning that goes into the Christian life. You want to grow in your knowledge. However, it's more like, more like the idea of an apprentice. The idea of, of coming into such a relationship with Jesus in which you consciously, deliberately um, are seeking and he's causing you to become more like him. In fact, you know, if you think about it as a journey in your life, you go from somewhere to somewhere else. And you can see how, when he lists the, the, the 12 disciples here in this passage, all of them come from very different backgrounds, just like all of us in this room. And you see the full spectrum of humanity, in a sense, in what's being represented here among these 12, these 12 men. You have guys who are extremely well-educated, and then you've got guys who are basically um, had learned a trade from their fathers and never, they, they didn't necessarily have an education like you and I would recognize. You have um, people who were kind of, um, you know, almost cozying up with the Romans, and then you had guys who were passionately anti-Roman. And it's like, it's like a bigger divide than Brexiteers and Remainers, okay? So just to get that in your head, like, Jesus was gathering people from all different backgrounds, just as he continues to do today. You just glance across this room, you see the reality of that. And that, that's true of Christianity globally. It's, it's the most global and evenly spread religion on the planet because it transcends every culture and societal divide. Jesus, Jesus will take anyone from anywhere. But he doesn't leave you there. And you think, what's the point? What's the purpose? What is he seeking to do in a disciple of Jesus? What does he do in you when you become a Christian? And I think the answer the New Testament gives is this. From wherever you come from, whatever place you began in life, he takes you and makes you more like himself. I think in a sense that's the ultimate goal and end and purpose of what it means to be a Christian. I, I get that from a number of places in the New Testament, but let me read to you a couple of verses which really underscore what I'm describing here. There's one in a letter called 2 Corinthians which says this. It says, We all... With unveiled face, who's so saying, without any mystery now, we understand who Jesus is. He's come to earth. He says, beholding the glory of the Lord. So, in other words, looking at him, you know, learning about him, understanding him. He says, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's describing a kind of gradual, slow work that happens in the life of a believer. From the moment you come to meet Jesus, right at the, the commencement of your Christian life, to the moment you breathe your last breath on earth, there is a persistent, constant project at work in your life in which Jesus gets his hands right in there and starts rewiring and molding and shaping the very desires and thoughts and internal motivations of your heart until gradually, sometimes through pain, often with joy, he makes you more like himself. And that's his purpose. So that's the disciple. And I want to ask this question as we just consider these men this morning. 
How does Christ begin and accomplish that work in us? And I want to give you three answers that come just from this passage, from this story, but which are true of the life of every Christian. And I want you to think about yourself this morning. Ask whether, firstly, whether you're drawn to it. You know you're not a Christian. Are you drawn to this? And if you think you are a Christian, you can map your life against the things I'm describing and ask, well, am I growing as a disciple of Jesus? Here are the three things. Disciples are those who hear, who dwell, and then who go. Hearing, dwelling, and going. Here's the first one. They're men who hear, people who hear. A disciple is someone who hears the call of Christ. You see it right there when he says um, in verse 13 that Jesus, let me just find my passage, I've lost it already. Here we go. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. He called to him those whom he desired. Now you might not realize this, but the most important thing about the Christian life is that from beginning to end, long before you're even conscious of it, God is initiating towards you long before you ever thought you went on a spiritual journey towards him. You know, from the human perspective, we look at our lives and think, well, what brought me today? And for some of you, it may be a spiritual hunger. What, what, what began my journey, for those of you who began years ago, and you think, well, there were certain desires that awakened in my heart, or I, I, you know, whatever it was that compelled you. But what you don't necessarily see immediately, but which you see with hindsight, Always is that God was doing something that you didn't necessarily perceive in the moment, but that he he began it long before you were even born. The Bible says that before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. It's saying before God even created the world, he'd given his son to be a sacrifice for us on the cross, which expresses something of the intentionality and the purpose of God in going after you and me. And it's often only with hindsight you begin to see how the pieces of your life come together in such a way that God got a hold of you and called you and began to awaken in you a longing to know him. This is what we call the the call of God. And you see it here in a very literal way when Jesus says he called them, you came to him. But it's true of every person who's become a Christian ever since. We experience this There's two different ways we need to think about this. There's the call of God which goes out in a very general way to all creation. Everybody has this invitation. It's very clear from the Bible that you are invited to become part of Christ's family. It doesn't matter whether you've, um, what you've done or where you've come from or if you have a prior commitment to some other religion. Everybody is invited to be part of Christ's family. That's the general call of God. But it's also clear that not everybody responds to that. Not everybody hears the invitation and gives their life to him. There's a parable which Jesus tells about this in in Luke's gospel, a different gospel, where he says, he describes it as somebody holding a great banquet. And he said, "A a man invited all these great people to his banquet, but they began to make excuses. It says that one said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Uh, please have me excused. Another says, I bought five yoke of oxen. So it's ten oxen. And, I go to exa- and I, I'm going to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've, I've married a wife. What a terrible excuse. And therefore, I, I cannot come. He says, I'm, you know, it's great. You've got this banquet going and all that. But I'm busy. I just got married. Um, we've got business to do. And uh, so this is how a lot of people are. It's like, you know, it's like when you get one of those invitations. You're like, yeah, I think I've got a thing 
to do with a thing, so I can't really make it. And Jesus is saying a lot of people are like that. You hear the general call of God, like there's an invitation. Everyone knows that you can become a Christian if you want to, but um, there's so many times that people offer excuses. So I'm not talking about that kind of call. A disciple is someone who doesn't just hear that general call. A disciple is somebody for whom that call has become a very personal thing, and you know that Christ has come after you. There's a verse somewhere else in the Gospels that says that many are called, but few are chosen. And I'm talking about what it means to experience being chosen by Jesus, where he has you in his crosshairs, and he goes after you, and there is no escape from this call that he puts on your life. And I want to describe for you some of the ways that you can experience that. Because it can be different for everybody. For some people, it is literally, it can and has been literally that people hear the voice of God. You see this all through the Bible. Times like Abraham and Moses, men you may have heard of, men with great beards, who heard the voice of God. It's irrelevant, by the way, just, just pointing out. They heard the voice of God at some point. Um, there's Paul who encounters Jesus on the road to, to Damascus. And, and, uh, and these guys, they hear Jesus and they know that he's coming after them. And so they give their life to him. And I, I think that can happen even to this day. I've read enough stories, met enough people who, who, who had dreams or God spoke to them or something like that. But the voice of God can come to you just as it does in this passage in Mark 2. Jesus called them, very literally called them. Uh, it's actually quite rare. There are some people who it begins with a spiritual appetite or awakening. There's a, there's a verse in one of the Psalms that says, Earnestly, earnestly, Lord, I seek you. It's, and it describes being in a dry and weary land. He says, my flesh faints for you. And that for some people, that sense of God calling you actually begins when you begin to realize that there's a kind of a yawning gap inside you. A deep, deep desire that feels like a thirst that hasn't been quenched and everything you've tried hasn't quenched it. Or a hunger that just cannot be satiated. And so eventually you find yourself, you find yourself on a spiritual journey. It awakens in you and you think, I, I must know what life is about and I must know the person who made me. It can be a voice, it can be a spiritual awakening. For some people it's, it's conscience. In fact, I think this is, this is part of everybody's experience of coming to Jesus. But at some point, you realize that you are not as good as you thought you were. There's a, there's a moment in, one of the, in, in the book of Acts, which is the, the account of the early church, where one of the, the apostle Peter, St. Peter, is preaching a sermon to thousands of people. And when he gets to the end of his sermon... You know, these, these are the Jerusalem Jews, the same ones who, a matter of weeks or months earlier, had crucified Jesus, called for his blood. But some weeks after that, something's going on, and they're conscious that Jesus is alive again, and that he, his church is full of his spiritual life. And when Peter preaches to them, the, the way they respond is they feel utterly struck to the heart. And they say this, they say, it says, when, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what shall we do? Sometimes for some people, this, the sense of being called into the family of God begins with a deep consciousness of sin. A deep awareness that your life is unworthy. And 
you know, I'm not in any way saying that in a judgmental sense because it's true of everybody in this room who has ever given their life to Christ. But it starts with that consciousness, I'm dirty and I need to be clean. We're going to be baptizing these two ladies today. And baptism is the, is the visible picture of what happens when you become a Christian. That you were dirty and then Christ washed you. For some people it's different. It can be about providential relationships that God puts in your life. You may look back on this one day and think, it's so strange how I met this person or that person, and how I was drawn to the authenticity of their faith, or they told me about Jesus, or something that they said or did just provoked me to think, what does that person have that I do not? And the Bible shows that this is one of God's instruments for, for calling people to himself. He puts in and around your life people who know him, and you think, I want to have what they have. There's a really amazing story in the book of Acts where this happens with a, there's a man called Philip who's one of the early Christians. And God speaks to him and tells him to go to a very specific place. It says, an angel said to him, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And it was in the middle of the desert. So he just says, go to this place in the middle of nowhere and just sort of await further instructions. It's like, you know, just go and stand there and see what happens. And uh, he goes down there and then he describes how there was this Ethiopian who's traveling from Jerusalem to festival time, right back down to Ethiopia and North Africa. And uh, he's a very important man, a eunuch, and who's in service to the Queen Candace of Ethiopia. And this guy is a devout uh, proselyte, someone who's converted to Judaism, it seems, because he's purchased at the festival an extremely expensive scroll, the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament. And these things, you know, this was before Gutenberg. There were no printing presses. So this thing was hand-copied, painstakingly written out by hand on expensive parchment. So he purchased this thing. He had no lack of finance. And he's reading it on the way home. So he must have known his Hebrew. He's reading it on his way home. I suppose he may have spoken Amharic, which is related to the Hebrew language. He's reading this thing on the, the way home. And as he's reading it, he gets to the point which describes prophetically Jesus, but he doesn't understand who this man is that's being described as having died for our sins and risen and, and given his life for us to, to forgive us. And he's, he's totally puzzled. And then it all becomes plain why God put Philip next to him on that journey on the way down. They, he climbs into the cart. They start talking. He explains what happened, how this prophecy got fulfilled by a man who just died and rose from the dead for our sins. And then he baptizes him at some body of water that they pass. And you think, all of this was God's providence, God's, God's control over the situation to make sure that that man met that man at just the right moment, the opportune time. And that's some, one of the ways Jesus can work in your life. Many of you whose stories I know of how you became Christians were about the providence of God knitting your life in with someone else's and how you found out about Jesus for the first time. For some people, it's that you experience spiritual reality when you encounter, or particularly maybe at church among God's people. The Bible talks about this. It talks about how someone can come into the gathering and there's... there's the word of God's sort of revelation is shared and they cut to the heart and they say, God is really among you. I've met many people over the years who've talked about experiencing reality when they came among God's people. 
And we're not talking about here about the kind of plastic spirituality that you see in the world all around us, particularly the Hollywood version of Christianity and like, you know, Jesus is my homeboy type thing. It's not that kind of stuff. It's like you come in, you see reverence. You sense that there's an awe, that there's a love for him, which is a supernatural thing. And the, even the presence of God is working in your heart. And I've, I've spoken with many people over the years that our church has existed, and they said, you know, I felt a peace or a tranquility or I felt the presence of something in this, in this place today. And it may even be true for you right now. You think, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the way God begins to woo you to himself. He's saying there's something authentic here and you'll not find it anywhere else. For some, it's actually just the Bible. I say just. I think this is the primary way God actually speaks to us. There's a story of one of the most influential Christians who's ever lived in the history of Christianity, a man called Augustine. He was an African Christian. And, uh, but he, he'd lived a crazy life up into you know, his, his teens. He was really, really kind of, I, I, I suppose, you know, like you expect today. It was kind of like a Tinder user long before Tinder ever existed. And he'd, he'd got, he just went totally crazy and, and just was totally sleeping around and getting drunk and totally illicit lifestyle and, and just was having a great time but also not having a great time. He felt deep inside himself a spiritual hunger began to awaken. And then one day he sat. He sat in the garden of a house and as he sat there he hears children singing a song, a little rhyme, a ditty. And they're saying these Latin words, tole lege, which is Take up, read. Take up, read. Take up, read. And they're just singing, repeating this rhyme. And he thinks, he hears it to himself as a word from God himself. And he goes and picks up a copy of the Bible. And as he opens the Bible, it falls open to the book of Romans, written by Paul about four centuries earlier. And he opens it up to the 13th chapter, and he begins reading verses 13 and 14, which say this. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he hears it in that moment, like God is speaking to him. Because he feels that whatever, all the things he'd been up to, up to that point, were not satisfying his life. And then God shows him the answer. He says, you're not going to find spiritual satisfaction by just indulging every physical appetite. Rather, put all that stuff away and experience life when you come to meet Jesus. And the Bible opens up his heart right there and then, and that's the call of God. I suppose for others, it's that you grew up in a Christian home. This was my story. I didn't come to know Jesus by some radical, eye-opening moment. I came because it was always surreal to me. There's a moment in one of the letters which Paul wrote where he's speaking to his protege, a man called Timothy, and he says to him, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. And Paul's describing the very common experience that me and many of my friends have had where that 
The call of God came because you grew up in an atmosphere. You're bathed in an atmosphere in which Jesus is real. And he, he began to be real to you from the youngest age. But however it happens for you, you are not a disciple unless you've experienced that call of God in your life. And you know he came after you. And it may be the case that some of you are experiencing that even today. In recent weeks, as we've been talking about Jesus, there have been a number of folk in this church who have been identifying, saying, Jesus is coming after me. As you hear the stories today, perhaps you'll, you'll, you'll sense there's a reality here that I need in my life. And that's the beginning of the Christian life, how a person becomes a disciple. They hear the call, just as Jesus uttered this call to his disciples. That's the first part. More quickly, here's the second. The second part of discipleship is dwelling. A disciple is someone who, to use the biblical language, abides with Christ. And you see how Jesus called these men. He said to them, he says, he went up on the mountain and called to those, call him, Called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Now, what I'm describing here for you, I think this is this is very crucial for discerning whether the faith that you have is real or not real. Because I've met many people who think that they are Christians but are not Christians, and the the, the dividing line, the distinction, is what I'm talking about here today. And it's the difference between membership and relationship. It's possible that you think of being part of, being a Christian is like you, you became a member of this thing at some point. It may have been in the dim, distant past. It may have even been a choice your parents made for you when they had you christened as a baby. You, you've got the label, you've got the badge, you've got the credentials, you're a Christian. No matter that it means nothing to you today except that you have the name. That's membership and that's not, that's not the real thing. The real thing the Bible shows us is relationship, where you, you know Jesus. I suppose it's like the distinction between a sham marriage and a real one. You know, it's possible, it's possible that you, um, you could so desire to live in Great Britain as it you know, teeters on the edge of, of its great future <laughs> with the no deal crash out of the European Union. You want that blue passport because they're going to give us blue passports at some point and you so desire it that you think how can I make this happen for me and you think I'm going to, I'm going to snag myself a spouse who'll give me a visa and, um, and so you know you can pull the wool over people's eyes you can deceive, you can deceive the, um, the, the, the officials at the embassies and you can you know, they'll, they'll give you an interview they'll ask you lots of interesting and important questions about how you met and how long you've known each other and your favourite your favorite food and all this kind of stuff. They'll try and dig in, but it's possible to put up a front. It's possible. But not all the time and not in front of everybody. And for some people, that's what your Christian faith is like. It's like you wear a mask or you wear the credentials. You kind of say you're a Christian, you know the right words. But it's a sham thing because there's no real love. There's no real relationship under the surface. It's not like you, you know Jesus for yourself. It's not like a real marriage when you encounter love between a man and woman who, who know each other inside out. What does it look like, though, when you, when you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? And I, wanna, I want you to think, ask yourself if this is true of me. 
There's an amazing passage in, in um, one of Paul's letters, a letter called Philippians. I want you to consider this, by the way, from two angles. There's, there's the way you relate to Jesus, and there's the way he relates to you. Well, first, just thinking about the way you relate to Jesus, what it means to dwell with him in terms of your relationship with him. And I think Paul captures it better than anyone I've ever read ever in a little passage in a book called Philippians, a letter called Philippians. And he describes some of the things that are true of you. He describes a kind of single-minded devotion and love for Jesus. He puts it like this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said, everything else in my life is second to this. That's when you know that Jesus is real to you. When you can say, I'm not saying it's not, it's not, it's not that you necessarily feel this all the time, or that there isn't a hesitation occasionally, but this is your fundamental reality. Christ is first, everything else is secondary. Another way he describes it is in terms of a willingness to make sacrifices for the greater gain of knowing Christ. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And he really had. I mean, he'd, he'd lost, his, he'd lost his, his social status. He'd lost the respect of his colleagues and friends in his old life. He lost absolutely everything. He lost his possessions. He lost all. He says, for, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He said, I put everything in the scales, and I, this is the calculation I made. Having Jesus is worth more than everything else in this life. And I don't think you know Jesus until you can say that that's my conviction. It's not necessarily that you're going to lose everything. But you can say if it came, push came to shove, if my back is against the wall, Jesus is worth more than anything else. He's worth more than family. He's worth more than my, my children. He's worth more than my possessions and my career and anything. That's when you know you, you know him. Another way he puts it is in terms of this constant desire to know Jesus more deeply. You know, if you know Jesus, that one of the signs you really know him is you want to know him better. Because you've had just a taste and you, you are, that's it, you've got the bug. You're hooked. You're obsessed even. He puts it like this. He talks about that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What I'm trying to put across to you, friends, is that you know that you're a Christian when you had your own personal Copernican revolution. The Copernican revolution was that time in the 1500s when everything we thought we knew about the universe was flipped on its head. Because suddenly we went from this old model of, of understanding, thinking Here's the earth, and there's the sun going around the earth, because that's certainly what it looks like, right? And then they realize, no, no, it's the other way around. We're going around the sun. You know you're a Christian when that's what happens in your life. It's like, you know, you're not the center anymore, and it just occasionally Jesus comes into your consciousness, you maybe once a week, or at Christmas, or Easter, or whatever. You know, you do your daily prayers. Just occasionally you see him coming into your consciousness. You're a Christian when that is flipped on its head. 
when he is the center and you revolve around him, that's when you know that you're with him, that you're dwelling, that, you, that he's real to you. A little bit further in that same passage, Paul puts it like this. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, my whole life revolves around him. Everything else has paled into insignificance next to him. That's you towards him. Also think about it this way, how Jesus relates towards you. Jesus, when you become a Christian, Jesus begins to make you his project. This is what he was doing with his disciples. When he said he called them to be with him, it wasn't just because he liked their company. It wasn't just because they made him laugh or because they could cook in meals or any of the rest of it. It was because he began, as I was describing earlier, like tinkering in their hearts and changing their lives. And you know that you're a disciple of Jesus when you're conscious that Jesus is doing that in you. For one thing, he's shaping your character. He's making you more like him. For another, he's, he's enhancing your gifts and using you in ways you never expected. This is what you see with some of these disciples, these same men, some years later, after they're preaching and they're debating with some very clever men. And, and they're running circles around these opponents in this debate forum. And they're puzzled because they're uneducated men, these disciples of Jesus. But they said, they realized that they'd been with Jesus. It's like he took them from where they were and he'd begun shaping their minds and their abilities. So much so. Because they've been with him that now they're useful to him. They're totally changed by the experience. There's more we could say on that. I want to, I want to move on to the last point. We talked about hearing his call. Talked about dwelling, being with him is at the center of your discipleship, and that never ends. Here's the last thing. You experience going. A disciple is somebody who is sent by Jesus. And it's here very obviously in the purpose Jesus has in these men. It says that uh, he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, what I'm trying to show you here is that this goes right to the very heart of the question of how you define your life purpose. What does does a meaningful life mean to you? And what are you trying to do with the, the short time you have on earth? And I think that in our context, at least in the West, there's probably four ways that we, we seek to derive meaning. There's, there are those who basically say, very honestly, but brutally, they say there is no meaning. Because we arrived here by accident and my life has no purpose except that which I just invent out of the back of my mind. And that's a very nihilistic view, but it's also a really honest one. And I certainly encounter people who just say, quite bluntly, that's what life is about. Life is about nothing. And um, that may be true of you. And uh, it's, it's utterly depressing, but it, it's an honest view if you think there isn't a God. Then there are people who say, no, the, the meaning of life and the purpose for which I'm here 
With uh, with the character who's the sort of American-born Chinese lady who's who's been raised in a completely different culture, and there's just this little throwaway line which just captures what we're talking about here, where she says, she just Eleanor says, pursuing one's passion, how American, and you think there's just so much scorn just poured on that right there. But she she's it's an observation you don't really understand about the West until you're outside of the West and you suddenly realize. Okay, why is it that everyone's running around trying to discover their passion, to find meaning for themselves? It's because we haven't been given meaning necessarily. So we've got to we've got to look in deep inside, and we've got to dig it out. And that's part of the certainly part of the American dream. It's certainly here also in Britain. Um, and I think it describes it, you know it captures why so many people take these extended gap years where they travel across um, the more mystical and romantic parts of the world, discovering the meaning of life and finding themselves. But the problem with it, of course, is that basically at the end of the day you're always caught in this anxiety of whether you're doing the right thing because if no one's there to tell you what the meaning is and you've got to find it for yourself then you never really know if you're right and in my experience a lot of people struggle with that in a chronic way because they're paralyzed by the choice and they don't really know if they're doing something purposeful and, and, and worth it in the end and so it really creates all kinds of problems internally then there are those who look outside themselves to find meaning you, know, you get it from your family you get it from culture you get it from Um, conscious or unconscious influences on your life. But wherever it comes from, things, things impose themselves on you and you, you find a purpose in life that way. But the problem is, of course, that the very things that give you purpose are, are the things that you worship. And you, the question you've got to ask is, well, are they worthy of it? You know, if I worship success, is success really worthy of my whole life devotion? If I worship the affirmation of other people, if that's what I live for, to be affirmed and recognized by other people... Is that worth it? If I live for family, is family the ultimate thing that you were put on this earth to live for? I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying any of these things aren't important. The fourth way you can discover purpose in life is when God tells you why you are here and what you're here to do. And that's what somebody who's a disciple of Jesus will and does experience that in their life. They feel a divine authority shaping their reason for being here. And sometimes it changes your course very radically from you were going this way and now God's pointing you this way. I've known friends who have totally turned their life around because Christ called them, they were with him, they grew to be more like him, and then he pointed them in the opposite direction and sent them off and was like, go that way. And so they joyfully went off or Often with tears, actually. But either way, you know, something, God does something in your life. That's when you know you're a disciple, when Christ gets a hold of you and you experience a sense deep inside, I know why I'm on this planet. I think some Christians never get there, sadly. It, it's, there's a bunch of reasons for this. One of them is because we privatized faith into spirituality, which is just a very internal thing that has no impact on the world outside there. Which is, the Bible doesn't know anything about that, by the way. The Bible says this pervades everything. 
Another reason is you kind of, we make the separation between spiritual stuff and secular stuff. So we say your spiritual life is over here. It's your, 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 your ability to pray or going to church, you're giving money or to, to, the, to those who need it, those kinds of things. And then there's, then there's the rest of your life, your job, your raising kids, all the rest of it. And God's got no real interest in that. And of course, again, the Bible has no interest in that way of thinking. The Bible says everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Some people just literally just disobey. You know, we, we read stories of this in the Bible. There's a guy called Jonah. God tells him, go that way. And he, he turns his back and runs as fast as he can in the opposite direction out of fear. And it can be true of you that Jesus is speaking to you saying, look, this is what it means to live your life for me. And you're, you're too afraid to actually obey him. I'm not saying that that calls into question whether you're a disciple or not. But you ought to be provoked to think about that question. There's all reasons why we don't. We don't, we don't do what he says. But basically, look, this is what happens in your life when Jesus is working. You experience a constant scent, sense of having been sent by him. And you know that the things that you go out into the world to accomplish, you do for him and not for yourself. And that happens in a few different ways. One of them, one of them is like this. It's just the repurposing of the ordinary stuff of life. Before you were a Christian, you had a job. After you're a Christian, you have a job. It might be the same job. But suddenly, the end to which you do your work has changed. Before, it was for any number of reasons, for the money, for yourself, for your family, who who knows. Now, it can be partly for all those things, but ultimately, the bottom line is, you feel a sense of sentness into that job because you're doing it for God, for his glory. He repurposes the ordinary stuff of your life and behind and underneath and surrounding you feel a sense of sentness. Another way you experience this as a disciple is you, you actually receive directives from God himself. I, I mean in the sense that you literally feel guided by him. He stirs things inside you and you think, I know, I know what I'm meant to run after. I don't have total clarity But obedience for me in this next season of life is pursuing that or walking through that door. And you have examples of this all through the Bible, of God steering people's lives. And it's an exciting adventure, actually. I certainly certainly have felt that in my own life. I've gone from, you know, an uncertainty about what's next and what to do to gradually God just showing me this is the next step. This is the next step. Just walk in this. I think anybody who asks Christ sincerely enough and with enough passion and and willingness, he'll talk to you about what's next. And listen, here's the last way I think this happens to you. I think that as, as you get to know Jesus, you just begin to look at reality differently. This this is the sign that you you're a Christian, I think. Maybe the last one I, I want to mention. I've mentioned so many today. But anyway, this is, this is really important. You see reality differently because suddenly life is not just about my little existence. You've fallen into a storyline in which God made the world and he desires that people come to know him. And you're an instrument through which they can know God. Because you can introduce them to Jesus. 
For these apostles being sent by Jesus, this was their bedrock driving passion. That now they understood that their their purpose in life was to introduce people to Jesus because nothing could be ultimately more important than that people would know his saving grace in their life and transforming power. And I I describe that as perceiving reality differently because, because that's truth. As soon as you step outside yourself, everybody has a destiny, an eternal destiny. And you can't be in fellowship with Jesus for very long, like knowing him, getting to know him without beginning to capture, capture some of his heart, his love for you and for people around you, and his desire to change the world. And friend, I want to ask you, let me just talk to those of you who are not Christians. Are you, is there any part of you that is aware that, that there's a call on your life, that Christ is calling you to come and know him? I want to encourage you that there is a point at which you must respond and you, you consciously decide. I'm going I'm to pay attention now. I think Jesus is going to, he might turn my life upside down, but it's, it's going to be okay. I want to know him. And it can be utterly terrifying and it demands that you consider this decision like no other decision you've ever made or will ever make in your life. But there can be no regret if it's Jesus at work in your life. Those of you who are Christian, I'm wanting to challenge and stir you to consider what kind of faith you have. Does your relationship with Jesus so control you that you, as I've been describing, you want to dwell with him? That he's the sun around which you, your life revolves, not the other way around. And are you willing to give your life to do whatever he tells you to do? I don't think any person could look him in the eye and ultimately say no to him. What is he stirring inside your heart? Why don't we bow our heads? We're going to pray. And we'll take communion as we respond in worship. My overriding passion as a pastor is that every believer who is in this church or who comes to this church has an encounter with the real Jesus and every person who is seeking discovers the real Jesus and his demands and also what he wants to offer you. What is he speaking to you today? How is he stirring your heart? As you take the bread and the wine, there is no more vivid picture of his devotion to you. And so to eat and to drink is almost by definition to enter into a relationship in which you are embracing him and nothing before him. So in the quiet, speak to him. Maybe you need to confess some part of your life you need to leave behind. Maybe you need to offer yourself to him afresh.
and eat and drink the grace of God, his love and compassion to you.